Turn to Hebrews with me. Chapter 2. We're going to hustle along from verses 1 through 4 to verses 5 through 9. We're not getting too far. but um, And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull on something here that you might read past too fast. And it just is vitally important that it gets seen. It is something that's all over the Bible. It is in relationships. It is in every setting where you do life. It is an understanding of the universe. It is an understanding of your existence. But you might not notice it unless we stick our feet in it and stand in it for an hour this morning and see it clearly. Sort of like, you know, I don't know, when you look at, you look at a city, you know, you see like cityscapes and you see a picture of the city, the skyline of the city, right? I mean, I've been watching women's soccer in the skyline of, of Australia and these famous landmarks and you see those things, they capture your attention and the, the water and maybe you see an, uh, a nighttime vision of the city and, and all the lights, et cetera, et cetera. You look at all that beauty and all that color and all that activity and you probably what you don't notice, I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you looked at a cityscape, the electricity. Did you notice the electricity? It's like you don't like look and say, huh? How do they get the electricity to that? And all those buildings have electricity in them. You know, like nobody stares at beauty and does that kind of Only nerdy engineers do that kind of stuff. But there's something running in creation, sort of behind the scenes. And, and I, I want us to see it in this passage because it empowers the stuff of life. Right? The same way that that hospital is a beautiful place, but you pull the plug on that hospital and it doesn't have electricity, it just simply doesn't do what it was supposed to do. Right? Well, there's things about our lives that don't do what they're supposed to do if you don't catch this. And we've just come out of the passage in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 where we were encouraged, exhorted to not drift from something and to not neglect this great salvation. So we're anticipating a great salvation being brought to us by the one who's featured in this book, Jesus Christ. And that's what we pick up here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. 
Father, these words are preserved by you, and they are inspired by you. You wrote through human agency thoughts that were needed for this original audience and thoughts that are needed for us. What an, what an amazing book we hold in our hands. Lord, would you open our hearts and our lives to see things. Lord, I pray specifically this verse, this passage highlights something that our culture doesn't value. Matter of fact, it protests it. It doesn't like it. Lord, help us to see and to love the things that you love. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I wrote in your outline there, the immediacy of this moment, right? Remember who we're talking to. Remember who we're talking about. This first century audience who's getting this information written to them, uh, they are Jewish believers gathered in house churches, probably in a city like Rome. We're kind of guessing on that one, not for sure. But they are needing to be told about a great salvation that's coming, that's in the works because of what Christ did. And the reason why they need to hear that is because their life is very hard. It's very disappointing. It's full of questions that they don't have answers for. It's a bunch of riddles and a bunch of pain and a lot of loss and confusion. And they're tempted to just want to walk away. And there's this hope that gets installed all throughout Hebrews. This is a book trying to awaken fresh hope in people who have seemed to lost it. And so the hope that's seeking to get awakened here is in this little phrase here. For it's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. There's more. There's more than this. There's a world to come. And in that world, it's not going to be like this one. That's the whole point of this. If the world to come is just like this one, anybody happy about that? But the hope here is the world to come is not like this one. So then he begins to explain, well, what's the deal with the whole world as it is? How do I explain to you anything that exists? And he doesn't get derailed here. He just fills in bit, a bit more information. And he does it by reaching to Psalm 8 and grabbing his thoughts from there. But I, just, I want you to notice what's running in the background. I want you to see the electricity in this passage. In verse 5, God is going to be subjecting. You see that word? Subjecting the world to come. He is going to be doing that. That word subjecting, it's going to be used as subjected or subjection here four times in just these few verses. It's the Greek word hupotasso. It means to place something under, to affix it, to subordinate one thing to another, to put under obedience. God is going to be doing that in this passage. It's all over the place. He's putting everything in verse 8 in subjection under his feet. Now, I'm putting everything in subjection. This in subjection is a big deal in this passage. It is the thought that comes with the idea that, hey, there's a better world coming for us. And God's going to be able to pull it off. So your hope is there. Well, how do we know God's going to be able to pull it off? Because he's going to put it in subjection to his will. He's going to cause it to be underneath what he wants to take place. And then this passage is dripping with what I'm going to talk to us about this morning, divine order. 
the electricity running in the background. It's dripping with it. Right? When he pulls out this thought from the psalm, in verse 7 he says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Right? Don't read past that too fast. There's creatures that have been made called man. And there's another set of creatures that have been made called angels. And God did this to them. Men, you go here. You okay with that? You were made lower than the angels. God did that. Right? Then in verse 7, it speaks of man in his created setting. But God says he crowned man with glory and honor. Now, don't repass that too fast. Did he crown everyone and everything that exists with glory and honor? Play along with me. No. He crowned man with glory and honor. It's the whole reason why this verse starts out saying, what is man? That you're mindful of him. Why are you paying attention to us? Why do we get any kind of special notice from you? Well, because you have been crowned with glory and honor. There's something unique that God put in man that he didn't put elsewhere. All right, now, this is running in the background, but can I make a, a, an obvious point and say it in a, to you in a weird way so you'll remember it? This is why none of us are going to feel bad today if we go home with Roundup and spray it on the weeds in our garden. Anybody going to like, is that going to ruin your afternoon? It's like, honey, I, I can't eat this afternoon. I'm sorry. I just killed a bunch of weeds. I feel horrible. Anybody spray any bug spray lately? Yeah? You, you had to pray about that? I'm about to annihilate a whole colony of roaches. Why, why does that not get to you? Well, because of the bugs and the weeds, they're, they're not crowned with glory and honor. Do you understand why abortion is a problem? Because when God ordered the universe. He said, some stuff, set it on fire, crush it, make pavement out of it. Grind it up and put it on your face as makeup. Kill it with spray. But I ordered things in this universe. In human beings, I uniquely gave them glory and honor, you be careful how you touch that. Because it sits in a different place. And then in verse 8, he describes God putting everything in subjection under his feet. I'm going to pull that apart a little bit more in just a second. But why are you saying all this? Why is this coming out in this moment? I wrote in your outline, what is this all about? Well, it's a presentation of the divine order that God arranges for his creation. 
And if you don't get this, you can't get act two. If you don't get the fact that the God of the universe has the right to order everything exactly the way he feels it should be ordered. And he has the last say so. If you don't get that and he turns around and says, hey, in the world to come, it will not be subjected to angels. If he doesn't have the right and the power, and those words go together in the scriptures. It's interesting. If you ever do, and I invite you to do, there's a word authority in the Bible. When you pull it out of the New Testament, you're going to come across a Greek word, exousia. And that word exousia is a, kind of a strange word. It doesn't just mean authority and it doesn't mean just mean power because a lot of times it's translated either way. It means the right to exercise power. So you both have power, but you have the right to use it. And that's the point of this passage. That in the background is running divine order into everything you lay your eyes on. God has put it in a particular place. And what the writer here is going to do, he's going to do a little bit of systematic theology here. He's going to bring a thought into this passage that he's going to reach back to Psalm 8 and grab it. And it's going to be what's found in verses 6 through 8. So let me reach back to Psalm 8 with him. And let's read from Psalm 8. Because to make his point... He needs more than just what's here in Hebrews. That's what systematic theology does for you, by the way. It, it allows you to see that, wow, this isn't just a point made in Hebrews chapter 2. This point is made all over the place. There's a bunch of places where God's making this point. Well, the more I see it, the more I realize, hey, don't interpret this weird. There's lots of scripture passages that help me understand what's being said here. Psalm 8 is one of them. Verse 3. This is the psalmist looking out at creation. He says, when I look at your heavens, whose heavens? His. The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you set in place, right? There is marvel. There is amazement. There's, there's infinity set before Man, there is mind-blowing diversity. I mean, you ever just stare at the plants sometimes and just think, look how many they are. And then you travel somewhere, there's just a whole other set of them. God did that. Verse 4, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You know what helps you ask that question? Bigness. If you're a small-minded, man-centered human being who thinks the universe is all about us, you don't ask that kind of question. you got to look at God and look at all that he's done to puzzle you to the point where you ask, why on earth do I even get noticed by you? Why are you concerned with me and the life that I live? How do we stick out? Well, here's how, verse 5. You... God, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over, right? This is an arrangement, isn't it? Dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
This, this is a design revelation, isn't it? This is an arrangement. This is order. This is God saying, you go here, you go here. This goes there. This, this goes above that. And this goes under that. This, you are underneath this. Everything gets put in its place by the sovereign Lord of the universe. I haven't tried to float this by the elders, but I've toyed with the idea that we would change, you know, our little logo sound and things. Ligby Christian Center, growing together for the glory of God. Got a lot of theology tucked away in that. I almost like, would like to put, come let God put you in your place. <laughs> it's kind of a, kind of a warm sounding thing until you read it theologically, right? And then you read Psalm 8 and you go, yeah, what exactly is my place? I am just a speck scratching my head wondering why on earth God is paying attention to me and how on earth his son ended up on a cross for me. You, you do understand. I know I've shared this strange revelation for you. When I walk at night, there's roaches that cross the street sometimes. They don't make it to the other side. And every once in a while, the thought comes to me. Actually, it's more often than not. The thought comes to me, God, why don't you just do that to me? I mean, do you understand that roach is insignificant to me? As a matter of fact, it's worse than insignificant. It's vile. It's disgusting. It it, it needs to be tortured and killed. Um, And then you see a bunch of them. They're like, oh, great, a huddle. Let's see how many we can kill in a couple of dances here. Uh, And I just stop sometimes and I wonder, God, the distance between me and that critter, I am closer to it than you are to me. Why do you take notice of me? Why do you give a rip about my life? Well, it's because God crowned me as a man and a woman, a human race, person that God made in his own image with glory and honor. He didn't make me in the same level as the roach. He made me stick out. I didn't make me stick out. He did, right? And this goes back to creation. So this is where you see multiple places. Hebrews chapter two is bringing up the order of God. Psalm eight is bringing up the order of God. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. Listen, the order of God. Verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After creating everything else, he says, no, but, but uniquely to this group, we're going to do something unique. They're going to be in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion over order, right? You got, I just created all this other stuff. Here, you, which I'm creating out of dirt, you're over all that. I order you above all that. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Oh, Lord, did you, did you have to point that out? Yes, I pointed it out. So that you would be clear for the rest of human existence. 
I designed human beings a certain way. I ordered them a certain way. If you back off the angels and then man, but in the age to come, it's going to get reversed. Who's deciding all this stuff? God is. And God comes along and he says, just so that you know, you exist and you are crowned with glory and you're uniquely in my image, but I'm going to separate you. Some of you are going to be men and some of you are going to be women. Who gets to decide that? God does. And he's not doing anybody wrong. He's the definer of what's right. If he made you a man, he did the right thing. If he made you a woman, he did the right thing. He gets to decide that. And if your culture decides to create a war between men and women, to value one above the other, to slam one at the expense of the other, if your culture does that, it doesn't change this for a second. This is all the way back in Genesis, long before Barbie came out which I understand is a man-hating movie as far as I've ever heard. Long before anything our culture ever did, long before a human being, male or female, did anything, God ordered that and arranged it in his creation. That's like he arranged everything else. So when you read Psalm 8, do you notice this? You read by it too fast. Man is over one thing. And he's under something else. There are going to be things in your life where you're going to be over something and under something else. Are you you okay with that? You okay with that? The thing you're under requires something of you, directs your life in a way that you don't care for it to do that, and you're under it? That's where this gets tricky, isn't it? But this is God's order. So let me take you on a systematic theology jaunt through the order of God as it pertains to these angels. And I'm grateful Frank did some work for us. That was very important because Hebrews is loaded with rich stuff that if you don't do your systematic theology, you don't get the punchline. So I'm glad we've all been taught angels are not these fat little babies with wings flying around playing harps in heaven. I'm glad that we're, we're getting, hey, there's something else going on with those angels besides bad music. All right, so... In the Bible, there's a divine pattern and a plan of subjection. I wrote this out in your outline. There is God draws a contrast between this age and the coming age in relation to how things are subjected to man and angels. He makes that point in this passage. Angels have some kind of role in the order that exists in this world. Not a lot available to us, but more than you would think, actually. That indicates angels are up to stuff around here. Remember? Jesus called Satan, who is an angelic being. Do you know what, remember what Jesus called him? The God of this world. He says, the God of this world is coming. He's got nothing in me. Well, he's got something in the rest of y'all, but he's got nothing in me. Well, could he be messing with the order of things? Well, yeah, he did in the Garden of Eden. You do remember the deal that he offered to Adam and Eve? He offered them a disorder, a reordering of things. God put you here with a limitation on you that you would need him in a certain way and not have direct access to the knowledge of good and evil. 
I'm going to arrange for you to have a promotion. And you won't need God. You will be higher than that. But that's not new, right? Because if you follow who Satan was in the Old Testament, that's what he wanted for himself. He was an ordered creature. He was a creature made by God to play a particular role. He looked at himself. He looked at his design. He looked at how God had made him. He said, hmm, I kind of like that throne thing God's got going on. He wasn't made to sit on a throne. No, no, no. But I like the throne thing. I will set my throne above. I will dwell in the north. I will have a different role. You could say everything in our world is here because of disorder. You could hang a sign on creation and say out of order. And that would be our problem. We are out of order. So, so listen to this angelic place that God says. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Deuteronomy is the end of Moses' life here. He's kind of summing things up. This is the song of Moses. And this is towards the end, the last few things he's going to be saying to the nation of Israel before he dies. And he calls them and says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, it's like what Moses is about to say, it, he's doing a little systematic theology here too. It needs previous information to understand this moment. He has to reach back to something that God has previously done, previously revealed for this moment to make sense. Can I just put a giant drum and pound on that? For you and I to make sense, of the life that we're living and the world that we're living in, we need to reach back to stuff that sounds like this. Remember the days of old, those other generations, your father, ask him, your elders, they'll tell you. People who can bring you some information besides what you learned yesterday from the people right around you, filling your ears with noise. God says, you're going to need something that comes from besides today to understand. I've been doing stuff for years. You might need to know that. So when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, some translations you have will say the angels of God. God fixed something about the nations according to the number of the angels. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So it's like he gave the nations to the angels. He kept Israel for himself. Is that fair? Most people don't get bugged enough by picking up the Bible and recognizing why does Israel get treated so special? Well, it's the same principle. Who is Israel that you are mindful of him? Well, who is man that you are mindful of him? God decided to put things in a certain order. He treats the nation of Israel differently because he chose to do that. He clothed them with honor uniquely. And that nation has been used by God in history uniquely. And, and no one gets to say, that's not fair. You can't do that. What about America? Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just reinterpret the Bible. We are Israel. Oh, Sorry, I'm just bugged by some people's theological approaches. 
David O'Brien in his commentary on Hebrews says, although God has entrusted the administration of the present world to angels, he has not done this in relation to the heavenly world to come. The biblical evidence for the angelic administration of the world goes back to the Song of Moses. He established boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. This reading implies that the administration of the nations had been parceled out among a number of angelic powers. The establishment of boundaries for the nations according to the number of the angels of God implies that the nations of the world had been subjected to the angels. Later in the Old Testament, in the literature of the Second Temple Judaism, this implication becomes explicit. The world to come, which God is not subjected to the angels, is the new world order inaugurated by the enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God. The world order over which he reigns from the place of exaltation. The world of reality, which replaces the preceding world of shadows. All right, buckle up and just fly through these verses here with me. Angels and God's ordering of boundaries is like the electricity you just didn't see in the cityscape. Acts 17, verse 26. Paul explained to the Athenians, he made, he did this, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Who did that? God did. He ordered the existence of nations. He allotted periods and boundaries. He is over their dwelling places. That's not just happening by chance. We get a little glimpse into this angelic management in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel's praying. He has an encounter with an angel. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, euphaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude, right? This was like no other man he'd ever seen. These are the words he's using to describe. The guy was glowing and had like a... Uh, delay effect on his voice. Like he had, guy had built in reverb. Verse 11. And he said to me, Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken the word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, right? Daniel has been praying. Your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. You ever thought that when you pray, ministering angels, which Frank covered a few weeks ago, get dispensed from heaven on a mission in response to the things that you are praying. They are administrating something into this world. Verse 13, the prince, this is what the angel said, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. 21 days. Who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Well, they're a nation whom an angel was given oversight to. Right now, if he withstood, the implication is this is a bad angel who's over this Persia. But Michael, another angel, 
one of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. I'm not sure that means human kings. Could be, but not sure. All right, so there's little hints of this stuff going on all around us. Remember this quick little thing in Genesis 28? Jacob has this dream. He said he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. They were coming back and forth between heaven and earth. Remember, God asks Satan when he shows up in heaven one day, where you been? Well, I've been roaming to and fro around the earth. Right? There's activity of these angelic beings that God has assigned for them to do in his creation. So where'd they get this role? It was given to them by God. They are administrating his creation. He, they are part of his divine order. Now listen to Jude. Jude verse six through nine. This is a head scratcher, but extremely informative. And the angels, this is New Testament Jude trying to explain some of this. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there are angels who wouldn't stay. They protested, if you will, the assignment that God gave them and rebelled against it and rejected the assignment God gave them. We will not be that kind of creature. We will not live this way. We will not behave that way. We're going to do this instead. And then look at Jude's next thought here. Just as, right, they did this. Here's another example of that issue of rejecting God's authority. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Serve it as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Why? Because they rejected the assignment of God, the role God gave to sexuality. God says, here's what sexuality is. Here is what it is about. Sodom and Gomorrah said, no, 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 no. Sexuality needs no boundaries. We don't want sexuality to dwell right here. We want it to dwell over here. And we have a genuine desire inside of us that that would be the case. Do you see those words? They pursued unnatural desire. Wasn't that they didn't want this. So listen, Christian, to stare out at a world and to become obligated that if people sincerely desire something, we should validate that. The Bible does not validate it. The Bible says your desire, no matter how sincere it is, it is unnatural. It is not what God created. It's not what God assigned. God arranged sexuality. It's intended for a purpose if you push its boundaries out and decided it can be done differently and I can be different in this, you have entered into Jude 6 and 7 right up there with the angelic beings who rejected the authority of God. Jude says, hey, you're right in the same category. 
You belong with them. Now, this goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning, he made them male and female. And our culture has come along today. And I'm I'm, going to speak to the young people especially, and I hope you'll hold on to this. Your confused culture has come along and told you, do you know why you don't feel right? Do you know why on the inside you're confused and and you're out of step and and you feel freaked out and and you just feel like your whole life just itches like you've been dipped in something and you just can't get it off of you? You know why that is? Because maybe you're not really a girl. Maybe you're a boy. Or maybe you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. Maybe, Maybe that's what's going on with you right now. Or, you know that desire you have, not for the opposite sex, but for the same sex? You know that desire you have for that? If you don't live exercising that desire, you will never be happy. Because that's who you are. Can, can you just let me mock that for a second? Somebody, some Johnny come lately came along and said, hey, I'm going to explain to you why your life feels the way it does. They could have said anything in that moment. Today, they're choosing to say those things louder than anything else. Please, I beg you, don't make the mistake of chasing that bad, bad idea. It's a bad idea. Don't think that if you mutilate your body and you go through all the headache and heartache of becoming a different sex, that that's going to fix what you're feeling. It will distract you from what you're feeling while you're going through that. It will not fix what you're feeling. You feel what you feel because your world has fallen. And nothing works right around here. The whole place is out of order. And it awaits a day when God says, I'm going I'm to make a new world. And in the new world, nobody's going to feel that way. And I'm going to subject everything to operate exactly the way I designed it to operate. That day is coming. So don't buy this idea. What is being sold to you, it's not going to fix you. It's going to give you a different set of heartache. The God who made you in the beginning ordered your life a certain way. The world has fallen. We do not at this time see everything in subjection to him, right? That's the reality of our lives. Everything ain't fixed around here. But your problem isn't in this category. And when God saw Sodom and Gomorrah decide, hey, you know what? We just need to take sex off the leash. They they were like the pre-60s, a long time before the 60s. But they just say, hey, free love, man. Let's just take sex off the leash and let's just, just let it run. Let it go. Did God say, hey, well, that was genuine. You really desired that. I'm okay with it. He brought judgment on that. Because it was out of order. And then Jude turns around and he says, hey, right now, going on in our churches right now, first century. Yet in like manner, let me give you one more example here. These people also, relying on their dreams, their own personal ideas, something that's subjective inside of them, defile the flesh. Listen, reject authority. And blaspheme the glorious ones. What do they do? What's Jude concerned about? You're out of order. You have rejected the order that God has created. That's the big problem with authority. You've rejected the order God made. 
And then he gives an example, goes back to the angels. Hey, listen, when the angel Michael contended with the devil and was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Why did Michael say that to Satan? Because he knew what order he was in. I'm Michael, you're Satan, I got nothing on you, man. I got, you are not lower than me. You are lower than God. I rebuke you in his name. I just recognize the authority issue that's going on in life. And it interesting, Michael models for us the recognition of divine order. And then Jude highlights it. And he says, hey, you know, the only good thing going on in this whole passage is what Michael did, the angel. So God responds to human behavior that cast off order with judgment. God's not okay with that. That's not just something that he was in a bad mood back in the Old Testament did. Jude is in the New Testament saying, hey, hey, pay attention. In like manner, just like that. You can do that too. And the church can do that too. All right, so let me, let me pull this into the reality of the church for a second. All right, everybody promise me you're not gonna get up and walk out the room right now. Everybody cool? This is what systematic theology does for you. If you pay attention to what the Bible says all over the place, you start to see, hey, these ideas are all related, aren't they? So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 visits a church meeting, the setting of a local church in the first century, just doing church together. And the apostle Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What are we dealing with right now? Order, aren't we? The same God who says, you go here, you go here, you go here. And he really crushes almost any argument, right? Because I know the temptation is, well, that was the Corinthians. They're the first century. They're so out of step. I mean, please. I mean, get in line with history, will you? They didn't know any better, and they had cultural issues going on. Well, you can't impose your cultural issues on Christ and God, can you? Clearly, this is an order that escapes the culture's control. Every man, now this, this has got some cultural stuff woven into it now. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. You're messing with order. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head was shaven. And so there's, I'm not going to unpack the culture here. There is a realm. It's almost like you and I wear wedding rings. Everybody know what this means? Do you, do you ever wonder why I'm wearing this on this finger? Right, you get that, right? All right, well, in this first century, there would have been something like that, that you would have got that symbolized authority. And for a woman to not have it was a pronouncement of, I am not submitted to authority. And that's what's getting picked up here. Don't everybody get lost in the, oh, well, this is about hair. It's about hair. It's about coverings, wearing coverings, and lose the fact that, no, it's about order. This is a passage about divine order. If you want to argue dress and styles, you miss the whole point of the passage. This is a passage about authority and order. 
Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Remember, man gets created. Out of man comes woman. And together, they are the image of God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels who seem to look on and observe God's creation as it either demonstrates or rejects God's order. This is a passage about order about God having chosen from creation to make men and women, men and women, and to make them different in the way in which they function in authority. It is correct to read the Bible and say, you go here and you go here. But God's been doing that since he created anything. If you're just tuning in because somebody made a big new deal about this in modern news, that, oh my gosh, wait, you mean women and men? It's like, why didn't you take up the angels' cause? They didn't get to be something different than what they were. Do you know there's some angels? Do you know their 24-7 job? It's not roaming the earth. They don't get to see Niagara Falls. They have front row seats for the glory of God, and they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as soon as they can say it, they say it again. And they say it again. And from all eternity, they have been saying, holy, holy, holy. They, they drew the bad end of the stick. What happened to these guys? Got a raw deal? You want to protest that? God ordered that for them. Thus, it is the most fulfilling thing they will ever do. To go see Niagara Falls. Can't touch it. Because God created them for that purpose. And God did this. In ordering that, hey, no, no, hey, men, you do this. And women, you do this. And you you don't do the same thing. And our culture comes along and says, hey, that's a bad deal. We do need to tell our culture where to sit down and when to sit down. The king of glory designed this. It's his creation. right? Let me get a little bit more sticky. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Once you see this, you see it all over the place, right? Paul said to Timothy in terms of how the church is being led, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. All right, again, I'm not going to chase the, the weird nuances that are here. You just read a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that women are to speak in church. They can pray and they can prophesy. They just need to do it under authority. So Timothy's not turning around and saying, no, they can't even do that. No, no, no. There are things that women are supposed to do that God's called them to do. But, but catch this. In both of these situations, why this exists the way it does goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It is not a cultural thing. It is divine order. It is God ordering his universe. So we have this thing It sits among us. 
It's in marriages. It's in churches, right? You might, some of you guys, if you're new to the church, you're wondering, hey, how come y'all don't have any women pastors? This is why. Because we see this as a matter of divine order, that God has ordered a different role for men and women in the home, Ephesians chapter 5, in the church. When you go to approach that subject today, you can come at it from one of two directions. You can approach it with the culture having set you on fire. The culture has controlled the narrative. The culture has told you which things to think about first, which things to value. And then you approach the whole topic of men and women with this sense of irritation, hostility, and protest. Or you can approach that topic from what we're talking about today. I promise you, if you will study divine order in the scriptures and then talk about this topic, you will think about it differently. Obvious statement. This is not rocket science. Divine order existed long before our culture did. God spoke it into his world and he revealed it. This is why he does the things that he does. And that order is cherished in the Bible, celebrated. All right, look at this couple of quick thoughts here. Christ values and honors divine authority, and it's intended to inform our daily lives. Right? You'll see it here, right? Philippians 2. Do nothing. Hey, this is instruction for us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. How on earth are we going to pull that off? Such selflessness, such granting things to others apart from ourselves. Well, this is how Paul says to do it. Here's how you do it. You have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And Hebrews 2 would say it this way, hey, Jesus, for a little while, you go be lower than the angels. For a little while. You, you understand how crazy radical that is? He is God. He's the one who ordered everything and told it where to exist. And he turns around and says, I'm going to go from here to here. That's the role I'm going to play now. And that's the key that this passage says is about how you relate to each other. It says being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Shortcut theology would simply be, dude, stay in your lane. I want something else than the dwelling place God has given me, but the son of God emptied himself, took a pay cut, a lesser role an unrecognized role for some who walked past him on the street because he was dressed like a, like a roach. 
walking amongst roaches to save them. And they didn't even know who he was. But he took that role. And in submitting to the order that God called him to submit to, the Father, he is exalted. Listen, submission to God's order, it ends in a good place. Disorder ends in a bad place. Can you say amen? So I wish, Satan, I wish you just stayed in your lane, dude. Stay in your lane. Adam, Adam, what are you doing? Stay in your lane, Adam. Just stay where God made you. Just live in the place, the dwelling place God puts you. It's easy to be PO'd at Satan and Adam, but somebody come stand up here and say, Keith, stay in your lane, man. Stay where God puts you, in the dwelling place that he puts you. He didn't grant you that place. He didn't grant you that person's place. You're not that being. Stay where he puts you. And isn't that the challenge? All right, when you get a little later in Hebrews, you get an interesting little invitation. This word hupotasso comes up again in chapter 12, verse 9, where God is disciplining his own. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject? Same word. Be subject to the father of spirits and what? And live. And the Bible here in this verse has already come around and said, nobody loves discipline. It's painful. That's what it's just presented that to us. Nobody likes discipline, but subject yourself to it because it's God's order. It's his work in your life. And it leads to life. It's going to take you to a good place. Submitting to the order of God takes you to a good place. Disorder takes you to a bad place. It's just the lesson of the universe. So I think it'd be accurate to say, redemption is God fixing the disorder of our world. So when he turns around and says, hey, do not, ne- do not neglect this great salvation. Here's what's coming. It's Hebrews 2 verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. There's a world to come of which we're speaking. Then in verse 8, he says some stuff that's mind-blowing. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But listen, hey, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Not yet. But we see him who for a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How did he do that? He stayed in his lane. I can do nothing except that which I see the father doing. He submitted to the order of God and was obedient to the point of death. And God exalted him and you and I are going to live forever in the good of that submission. Do you understand? His submission purchased the new world for us. If he doesn't submit to that, there is no new world for us. How valuable is a pathway of submission. 
Seth, go ahead and come back up, buddy. I'll give you this last thought. John Piper always says things so catchy and so well. This is mind-blowing. This is good news. This is comfort for us who live in a world that's not cooperating with us, and it's a little painful as well. Piper says, the first man, the first Adam, sinned and was subjected to futility and death. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, defeated death and restored the hope of Psalm 8 for all who are in him. You, Christian, who do not neglect this great salvation, you will reign with Christ. And all things will one day be put in subjection to you. How do you like that idea? All things will serve your great good. All things without any mixture of pain or sorrow or regret will manifest the glory of God to you and through you as you rule with Christ. What then shall we do? Put your faith in the promise of this great future grace. That what you see in Christ, remember that's the whole Hebrews keeps inviting us, consider him, consider Christ. What you see in Christ today will someday be your portion. Fix your eyes on Christ, not on the pain and futility and frustration and sickness and death of this age. They will not have the last word. Christ has conquered death and all the sin and pain that leads to death. Think of him. Consider him. Look to him and say, oh, don't you want to say this? Say to cancer and paralysis and sightless children and airplane eating Everglades and child shooting fathers. Say to every unsubjected, that's the problem there, isn't it? Every unsubjected enemy, Psalm 8 is my destiny. In Christ Jesus, all things will one day be put under my feet and I will rule with him in glory forever and ever. Is that, why is that valuable? Why, what even makes that possible? The electricity running in the background that you don't notice. The divine order of God who created everything and has the rights to create it again exactly the way he wants and to eliminate whatever he wants and to create conditions that do not exist today. The God we look to and trust, Jesus Christ, has that authority and power. But when you read the scriptures, it's not just asking you, hey, can you just celebrate that for one day? Because you and I pray all the time, Lord, thy kingdom come and thy will be done here, now. Which means you and I, can learn to stay in our lanes. You and I can celebrate the fact that there is authority in this world and it's not ours. It's his. And he created things and he put all of us in a certain place. He put us in a place. And I may not like my dwelling place from time to time, but God created the boundaries. God created the dwelling place. It was a little hard to swallow, even driving and pray this morning. The reality that I don't always like my dwelling place.
I wanted to have other characteristics. I want a different role. I want creation to relate to me differently. And I'm sure you do too. But there is a submission to God that recognize he orders the universe. And the hope I have is that he will order a world to come, but, but he orders this one too. And let me just honestly say two things here. I'm already over. Two very important things, because this is so vital. This is the electricity stuff that runs in the background of our Christian lives. But two things that will make it hard for us to either catch this or to not just dismiss it. One is a lack of systematic theology. Now today you got like a whiplash version of, hey, can we race through the Bible and see this all over the place? Do you see it all over the place? You can shake your head. It's all over the place. And I didn't even get us past the tip of the spear. It's all over the place in the Bible. But if I don't study it all over the place, I will treat it like it's a small deal, not a big deal. Not a big deal for me to be out of line. Not a big deal for me to protest things because you were raised in a culture that values protesting. Nobody tells me what to do. Let me mess with everybody's politics. We're about to start an election year. Let me just go on record as saying this. I am grateful I'm an American of all the nations in the world that a sovereign God could have put me in, I am grateful he put me here. I I think the principles that guide the genius of three branches of government, I think there's a lot to appreciate. But can I just tell you, read the documents of America through a filter. They're not the Bible. They're not inspired by God. Some of the writers weren't even Christians. Don't think that everything in here is like the Bible turned into a country. So I'm going to introduce you to what happens when the Declaration of Independence meets divine order. Founding document, right? Before you do anything with the Constitution, you start here. Let me see if your siren goes off at all as I read this to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Stop. Who defines those terms? What is life? Me having my dreams, advancing my cause, and I happen to be pregnant? And that is in the way. That's not life. That's life. You understand, that could be my definition for life. When I read this document, it might not be yours, but hey, it's America. I can think whatever I want. Liberty. From what? The pursuit of happiness. OMG. <laughs> what the heck does that mean from person to person? And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers. That's an exousia word. The right to have authority. Where do they derive these powers from? From the consent of the governed. 
Do you like that phrase? It's empowering, isn't it? The government gets its power from us. What are these knuckleheads doing in D.C., huh? We, you report to us, buddy. Do you notice that the God of the universe does not derive his power from our consent? Ever? He has the right to exercise his authority and his power because of who he is. It's inherent in him. If no one cooperates, he still has every right to say this is what's right and this is what's wrong. He doesn't poll us. He doesn't ask the angels, oh, Satan, so you don't want to play that role? Hey, vote amongst the angels and democracy could kick in there and I'll just go ahead and do what you want. It's not the God of the universe. He does not derive his authority from us. We derive our existence from him. We don't. He doesn't get his authority from us. We don't have to agree with him for him to be right and for him to be God. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Reinvent the laws around what you think will make you happy. That's the Declaration of Independence. Now listen, I love this country. But when you go and empower sinners to do whatever it is that's going to make them happy, they're going to change the laws. Because this generation thought this would make them happy, and this generation thought this would make them happy, and this generation thought this would make them happy, and this generation, by the time you get to us, you got some bizarre stuff out there that's going to make people happy. And they want the laws to reflect that. And our documents tell them that's how you do it. And so you throw the tea in the harbor, and you cast off governments, and you say, you don't tell us what to do. And you protest order. Some of that is in the bloodstreams of every one of us in this room. And when we bump into divine order, there's something in us that wants to rise up against divine order and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm going to protest that. You mean, wait a minute, Keith, you're saying men get to do this and women get to do that? I'm saying read carefully your Bible. For the God who orders everything in his universe the way he wants it to be. And sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we misrepresent God's authority. I'm not making a case against that at all. It happens in churches. It happens all over the place. But as you venture into this coming year, you're going to venture into something that will tempt you to dishonor, to dishonor the order of God. Can you you guys hold on to this verse? I'm going to pray in one second. When you start seeing this stuff, you're going to see it everywhere. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject, same word, to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. You can't get authority anywhere else. He's the only one who has it. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels, you recognize the angels are going to be judged who rebelled against God and they will never be redeemed. There is no heaven or hell for them. There is only a hell. Aren't you grateful God clothed us and put honor and glory on us in a unique way? That he sent his own son to redeem us. He did not send his son to redeem one angel. Every fallen angel will remain fallen for eternity. That could have been our story. But by God's design, he sent his son to die in our place. This stuff needs divine order to make sense to us. Relationships need that. The church needs that. Governments need it. And we just seem to be skipping it these days. Can I just pray for us? I know it took a long time. Let me just pray for us because this is a big deal for us, right? Father, it's so interesting to hear the hope that is in this passage about a new world that's coming. And you want us to have hope that it's, it's going to be different than this world because you're going to subject things a certain way in that world and everything's going to be in order. Not going to be like this world. Not going to be out of order. It's going to be in order because you're the God who is over everything. You have the right, Lord. This world is yours. Everything that exists is yours. Lord, we long for you to remedy the disorder that's in this world. The disorder that remains even in our own lives as we resist submitting to the things that you have created and done. So Lord, make us a people who run toward your divine order, not away from it, because life is in the way you design things and death is elsewhere. And Lord, we want to see life among us, in our families, in our homes, in our church, in our country, in our community. God, we want to see your life. So God, restore your order. Restore it in our hearts. Lord, let us pray your kingdom come and your will be done now here on earth as one day it will be completely in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Hey, guests, don't forget. I know it took a little bit of extra time, but please love to meet you guys on the way out today in the bookstore. And if you need prayer, don't walk away from praying with somebody here and come pray with us Wednesday night. Wednesday night, we gather for prayer for all that God's doing and about to do. We hope to see you then.